Welcome to 5 Things About. I'm Sylvie Van Wall. Today, we explore 5 Things About the Habsburgs. They're the most influential monarchy you've never heard of. They're involved in everything from the French Revolution to the outbreak of the First World War. And there's a lot they can teach us about power in a globalised world. To discuss the Habsburgs, we're joined by Kurt Baird, who holds a Master of Philosophy and is a postgraduate student at the University of York. Kurt specialises in Central European history during the Napoleonic era and has a particular focus on the Habsburg monarchy. He's joined by Bess Keeney from the Melbourne Law School. Can you set the scene for us? Who are the Habsburgs or who were the Habsburgs? Yeah, so when we talk about the Habsburg monarchy, we're talking about a dynasty or a family that existed from the end of the 13th century all the way to about 1918 when they were dissolved at the end of the First World War. So when we talk about the Habsburg monarchy, we talk about everything that they controlled and them as a family. The Habsburg monarchy had many different kingdoms under their control. They had the Kingdom of Hungary, the Kingdom of Bohemia, the Kingdom of Croatia, also parts of what we know as Austria now and Germany. And they acquired them not through war, but actually through marriage, which is why when they married into different families, they had to respect the traditions of the countries that they inherited. So instead of when you conquer a kingdom, like say the Roman Empire did, they could then wipe away everything that was there and impose upon their will, upon the people, upon the governments, and to make them as the Roman Empire. Then we look at the Habsburg monarchy because they had to respect the traditions and the privileges of each and every country that they inherited and married into. Then you have a, a state which is made up of a lot of different sects and a lot of different groups, and each of them are informing one another and pulling apart from each other. And so the Habsburg monarchy, in, in what I study in particular, is how they were able to govern those collectives as a single unity and actually exist for nearly 600 years whilst doing so. How is it that the Habsburg Empire was centrally controlled? Where was headquarters? Yeah, so headquarters was in Vienna where they had a number of, um, I suppose you would call them public infrastructure services where the idea was that they would collect taxes at a local level and then it would be sent to Vienna and then it would be distributed as it was needed to social welfare, the army, the church, whatever. The fortunate thing about the Habsburg monarchy is that they were the kings of each particular state they were in. So they did have the legal right to level taxes and to take taxes from the nobles and the serfs of those particular areas. The unfortunate thing for them, though, is that they were never very close to where they were taxing because they're in Vienna, it was difficult for them to control all of Hungary. And because uh, they're in Vienna, it was difficult them to control all of Bohemia. And so what happened is that the tyranny of distance really made it hard for them to gather the resources that they had available to them, which was probably on the level of France. But because France was a lot more centralised and everyone spoke French and everyone recognised that the Bourbon monarchy had the power, they were able to get more taxes. Only until Joseph II was there an, an attempt to make it more centralised and for Vienna to have more control. But again, what you have is that you have push and pull from local jurisdictions and local nobles who really don't want to pay more taxes and don't want to borrow of it. The Habsburgs are often described as an empire rather than a monarchy. Why do you think that might be? What we see when we study the Habsburgs is that they respected all the traditions of each particular state and look to bring them together as one. And the one thing that unified them was the monarchy as separate kings and queens of each single 
state or kingdom they ruled over. They didn't go in there and remove the thrones of, say, the Kingdom of Hungary. What they did is that they respected it, put themselves on the throne, and ruled many different areas as one. So when we say the Habsburg monarchy, we're talking about the family who then sat on that particular throne and unified a collective through their dynastical holdings. So an example of colonisation by marriage could be Marie Antoinette. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So Marie Antoinette is an interesting character. Diplomatic histories and histories are generally written by men and they don't really cover women that well. So when we look at Marie Antoinette, we have someone who is painted as quite vapid, someone who doesn't really know what's going on in the world and someone who really is weak because of her gender. And so when we look at Marie Antoinette, we only see her as someone who united the House of Austria, the Habsburgs, with the Bourbon monarchy in France in order to solidify an alliance that they had together. Unfortunately, what we have when we study Marie Antoinette is that we only know that she was hated by the French people. And she was hated by the French people from about the moment she arrived until she was executed. And it had nothing really to do with the way that the French Revolution went about. In France, because of the fact that the Habsburg monarchy was constantly trying to strive for power in Central Europe, uh, they really feared Austria and they were confused as to why they had an alliance with them. And that confusion and fear was projected onto Marie Antoinette. What happens is that even though they had an alliance between France through marriage, it's something that really unsettled their position in Europe. Could you tell me about Franz Ferdinand and where he fit in the Habsburg family? Yeah, so Franz Ferdinand was the nephew of Franz Joseph, who was the current head of the Habsburgs. And he was a man who was quite into claiming more of the Balkans from the Ottoman Empire when their power in Europe was diminishing. But he was also someone who was really interested in making the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which it was called at the time, something that could be shared by all. And so really, he was happy to decentralise the government of Austria and make it inclusive for everyone. His uncle wasn't too keen on that. And when he was assassinated, he wasn't too sad that he died. But the problem with the assassination of Franz Ferdinand is that it showed that the Habsburg monarchy or Austro-Hungary was actually quite weak. It was something or someone who could not stand on its own in the diplomatic field of Europe and needed the alliances of of Germany and then again uh, the Ottoman Empire to exist. And that was probably something that the Austrian high command and also the Austrian government uh, weren't too aware until they actually entered into conflict with Russia and Serbia. Kurt, we've heard about Marie Antoinette and Franz Ferdinand. Who are some other members of the Habsburg family that we today might recognise? We might not recognise them, but I think a very important person that we should focus on and a lot of people do focus on is uh, the Emperor Joseph II. He was around from 1765 through to 1790. He was quite a progressive man. He handed down a lot of edicts of toleration, particularly for Protestants and Jews, that they could practice their religion, they could own land, and that they could be part of uh, Habsburg society without being criticised by the majority. The unfortunate thing about Joseph II is that the vast majority of his edicts of tolerations and progressive legislation that he passed through was to make sure he could get men to fight in his wars. What he wanted to do is he wanted to remove the power of local estates in raising regiments and raising money and having that in direct control of his government. And he also wasn't too keen on the idea of having different traditions and different legislations that he couldn't control. His mother, Maria Theresa, was also another progressive monarch. Some historians call them enlightened despots. 
Kurt, tell me about Maria Theresa. So Maria Theresa was the first female Habsburg to head the family. Um, When her father died, he didn't have any sons who could take over. Uh, So what he did is he spent the last 20 years of his life making sure that everyone would acknowledge and grant Maria Theresa the right to ascend the throne in what we call the pragmatic sanction. A lot of states said, yes, that's fine. We have to remember that having a woman on the throne in the 18th century was alien. It was unnatural. And also, especially when you have the enlightened writings of the time, which we view as something rational, they were still irrationally saying that gender could divide you. And so what you had is that you had a few states, especially Bavaria and especially Prussia, who were willing to use the ascension of Maria Theresa and the chaos that would arise from that as something to gain more land from, that they could attack the Habsburg monarchy at what they saw its weakest moment and acquire more provinces and and more riches. And Prussia under Frederick the Great wasn't too keen on Maria Theresa at all. He was able to take the Habsburg monarchy's richest province in Silesia, which is now in western Poland. And what happened is that for the next 23 years, there was almost a running duel between Maria Theresa and Frederick the Great that was fought on an international stage between Russia, Prussia, Great Britain, France and Austria over who could and who should control Silesia. And we now know that as the Seven Years' War. Uh, And Maria Theresa was the one who then decided to go about reforming the Habsburg monarchy so that she could take on the might of Prussia and defeat and humble Frederick the Great. In the Napoleonic Wars, Britain is largely remembered as the leader of the coalition that defeated Napoleon. Do you think that's fair? Yes and no. What you have is that history of the Napoleonic Wars in the 19th century focused on on national histories and eulogising the past for the present. So British and French historians focused upon the clashes between Britain and France, which had been going on since the end of the 16th century. And German historians focused on the rise of Germany. And the Habsburg monarchy really fell at the sidelines because they were seen as someone who was conservative, had gotten the way of liberty, equality, fraternity, and someone who was willing to reverse what had happened in France and return it back to the old order. The Austrian Empire or the Habsburg monarchy wanted to make sure that Europe was stable. But in doing so, They also wanted to make sure that they got a slice of the pie when the Bourbon monarchy fell. Now, they couldn't do that without the help of Britain's gold. And Britain couldn't make sure that France didn't take over all of Europe without the large armies of Austria. So what you have is that you have basically Britain who's willing to pay for a war and Austria who's willing to fight for a war. And without the two together, I don't think you would have had the defeat of Napoleon or the end of the French Empire. So I would say that it's probably half and half. It's interesting, nonetheless, that Britain, most likely because it's still around today, is remembered, whereas the Habsburgs are largely forgotten. Could you shed some light on why you think that is? Yeah, well, of course, the end of Napoleon is the Battle of Waterloo, and that involved Britain and their greatest general, the Duke of Wellington, facing off Napoleon in a sort of grand final of the Napoleonic era. Only two years earlier, though, the Habsburg monarchy had ended French power on the continent and it rolled back the French armies all the way from Berlin to Paris and it occupied Paris. The unfortunate thing for the Habsburg monarchy and, and I suppose the apologists today is that Napoleon came back and that's why he had the opportunity to take on Wellington. There's many arguments within the field of military history which say that 
if Napoleon had have won at Waterloo, then he would have had to face the Habsburg monarchy anyway, and he didn't have the power or the men to defeat them. The good thing about the Habsburg monarchy is that they'd been at war with Napoleon for about 20 years, and by that time they were actually willing and able to fight him, whereas maybe at the beginning, when they took on the French revolutionary armies, they weren't quite well equipped. The Habsburgs aren't often spoken about nowadays. Have they completely disappeared? Uh, No, they haven't. We're lucky that they existed for 700-odd years. So everywhere you go in Central Europe, there is something that could be called Habsburg and there's a building that was probably funded by them and there was probably a tourist information board that has everything about them. Their family still actually is part of a political life and business life. They're quite staunchly Catholic. At the moment, there's the uh, ambassador to the Vatican from Hungary is a Habsburg and they have substantial business holdings in the Czech Republic and in Austria itself, and also some of them have participated in public life. So we know that the control of the Habsburg Empire dissolved after World War I, but what became of the family? So the family, even though they weren't part of any government or, or had any control over any territory, they still had a vast substantial amount of cash and coin that they'd squirreled away for 600 years probably. And also though, even though you remove a legitimate government, is that you still have to make sure that they're looked after because they were seen as legitimate. So what happened is that even though they couldn't claim territory and they couldn't be part of public life in Austria, they were given homes by other royalty in Europe and they were provided with access to things that only royalty can have access to. So even though in 2017 they're still quite influential, they still have a lot of capital and they still have a lot of business assets. And again, because the territories that they still live in now have a sort of cultural memory of being ruled over by them, they're more than willing at some points to have them be part of government and make decisions and be part of representing them in a democratic society. And we have that particularly in the Czech Republic. What happens is that when they left Austria, the vast majority of the family hadn't renounced their throne, but after the Second World War, they were allowed back in because they'd renounced their claim to the throne of Austria. So now when they die, they're still buried in their their family crypts in Vienna, which you can visit, and it's quite morbid, but also very fascinating, especially for me, to go back to about the 1200s and, and see where they're buried, and all the way up until the last one was interned in 2010. So there still is a respect for what they represented and for who they were. I think the same respect that maybe Britain has for their queen, but it just so happens that Austria and the rest of Central Europe has moved with the times. So they're a royal family without a throne. Basically, yeah. We can learn a lot about how to exist in a society that's transnational and it's globalised by studying the Habsburg monarchy and the way that they came about existing for 600 years with different ethnicities and different nations under their control. And that's, I think, something that we should look to more as we go forward, especially with um, present situations, is how do people come together and how do they exist if they don't have the same cultural traditions, they don't have the same legislations, they might not even have the same religion. But there is something we should learn from the Habsburg monarchy, even if some things they stood for we would reject today. So that's five things about the Habsburgs, or possibly six. We're good with words, not with numbers. Thanks to Bess Keeney and Kurt Baird. This episode was recorded on the 21st of June 2017. Producers were Sigourney Young and Claudia Hooper. Editing by Claudia Hooper and Arch Cuthbertson. 
Audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour. Five Things About is a training podcast created by Dr. Andy Horvath at the University of Melbourne. I'm Sylvie Van Wall. Join us next time for another episode of Five Things About.